and refestens them to eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. Our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present. With this in view, we sometimes tempt a human, say a a widow or a scholar, to live in the past. But this is of limited value. It is far better to make them live in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. Fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead. To be sure, the enemy wants men to think of the future too, just so much as is necessary for now planning the acts of justice or charity, which will probably be their duty tomorrow. The duty of planning the morrow's work is today's duty. But we want a man hag-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present, if by so doing we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other. We want the whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end. Never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future every real gift which is offered them in the present. It follows then in general, and other things being equal, that it is better for your patient to be filled with anxiety or hope. It doesn't much matter which. Your man may be untroubled about the future, not because he is concerned with the present, but because he has persuaded himself that the future is going to be agreeable. As long as that is the real cause of his tranquility, his tranquility will do us good, because it is only piling up more disappointment and therefore more impatience for him when his false hopes are dashed. If, on the other hand, he is aware that horrors may be in store for him and is praying for the virtues wherewith to meet them, and meanwhile concerning himself with the present because there and there alone all duty, all grace, all knowledge, and all pleasure dwell, his state is very undesirable and should be attacked. At once. Now, again, these are the words of screw tape to Wormwood. And screw tape's advice on attacking us, mankind, his patient, with regard to the future was apparently Satan's approach when attempting to get Jesus off course as well. But Jesus did what his father, screw tape's enemy, wanted him to do. He did today that which needed to be done to be ready for his work on the morrow. In our text for today, we see Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and what awaited him there. And the first thing we discover is that Jesus did not let fear distract him from his goal. We're in Luke chapter 13. 
picking up with verses 31 and 32. Just as that time, some Pharisees came up, saying to him, Go away and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Now, the fact that some Pharisees came to warn Jesus about Herod is quite unexpected, and Luke doesn't explore their motives for coming. We do know that by now the Pharisees were themselves plotting against Jesus, and so their warning of Herod's plot to kill him doesn't make a lot of sense, unless, of course, those coming were secret disciples like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Whatever the case, some Pharisees do come to warn Jesus. And as shocking as that might be to us, Jesus' response to them is also a bit surprising. He simply said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Now, calling Herod a fox in and of itself, is a bit surprising. In fact, it's pretty derogatory. After all, Herod was a king. And if he thought himself an animal, it would have no doubt been a royal lion. Of course, in reality, he was only the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, a puppet king of sorts under the Roman emperor. But still, calling him a fox, a sneaky, deceitful little animal would have certainly been offensive to him. And Jesus wasn't saying it behind his back, like we might do when talking about a politician we don't like. He no doubt expected the Pharisees to tell Herod everything he had said about him. And Jesus wasn't ignorant of Herod's power. He had already cut off the head of John the Baptist. But Jesus couldn't let fear distract him from what he had come to do. He couldn't drop everything and run just because Herod wanted to kill him. He had come with a purpose. And his immediate task was to bring deliverance and healing to those who needed it. So today and tomorrow, he said, he would be casting out demons and performing cures. That wasn't, however, his total purpose in coming. In fact, it wasn't his primary purpose in coming. He came to effect change for all time, not just for the short time he was on earth. His ultimate goal yet lay ahead and wouldn't be reached until the third day. Now, whether that's a veiled reference to the resurrection or merely a statement that his goal wouldn't be accomplished in the next couple of days, we can't be sure. Possibly both were intended. But irrespective of his intent, the message was clear. Jesus had a mission to fulfill, and no one could stop him. Herod's father, Herod the Great, had tried. Shortly after Jesus' birth, he had killed all the male children to and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding area in an attempt to stop Jesus. But he couldn't, and neither could Herod Antipas. Jesus had come on a divine mission. 
And he wouldn't let uncertainties and threats concerning the future distract him from what he had to do in the present. In fact, all hopes for the future were in his hands. And he knew what he had to do. So Jesus didn't look for an easy way out. Verse 33. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Herod's threats couldn't make Jesus leave. He had work to do in Herod's territory. But he would journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. He would leave the lesser threat in Perea and head directly into the greater threat awaiting him in Jerusalem. He knew his mission couldn't be fulfilled outside of Jerusalem. So that's where he was going no matter what. And he wasn't going to Jerusalem, to the Jewish capital, to establish himself as king of an earthly kingdom, as many thought the Messiah would. He was going to the home of the temple to offer himself as a sacrificial lamb. He had to go to Jerusalem to die. That was his purpose in life. God had become man and had lived an exemplary life, a perfect life, in order to be able to offer that life as a sacrifice for sin. God's righteousness had demanded that a penalty be paid for sin, for rebellion against him and his will, and that penalty was death. For us to pay it would have condemned us to an eternity cut off from God, eternal death. The only way that penalty could be paid and mankind still be saved was for God himself to pay it. And that is why Jesus came to earth to die for us. Still, he could have avoided it by not going on to Jerusalem. But he didn't look for an easy way out because there was none. Not if he was to accomplish his goal. And he knew it. Fortunately, we don't know all the future has in store for us. If we did, it would be even harder for us to face it with resolve. If we knew some horrible things were just around the corner, it would frighten us beyond words. You know, the uncertainties of life and the future in and of themselves are hard to face. But like Jesus, we must remain committed to doing what must be done today to be ready for tomorrow. And we have been told in Scripture what we must do, how we must live today if we would be ready for tomorrow. Now, Jesus didn't look for an easy way out, and neither should we, because there is none. Jesus went to Jerusalem, knowing that he would be rejected by those he was coming to save. But he didn't let rejection dissuade him, and neither can we. Verse 34. 
Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. Jesus loved God's people. He loved the temple. He loved the holy city. And as he thought of the city, he was moved with emotion and affection. He saw those he knew would reject him, not so much as rebels and sinners, but as children who were scattered and frightened and vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. And how he longed to gather them together as a hen gathers her brood. How he longed to gather them together under the shelter of his wings to offer them peace and security. But they would not have it. They would reject him, just as they had done the prophets sent before him. And just as they had killed and stoned the prophets, so would they crucify the Son of God. But their rejection would not dissuade him from doing what he had come to do. Yes, as a nation, they would turn their backs on the greatest gift God had ever sent to them. They would refuse his offer to become their savior. But their refusal would simply open up the offer to all mankind. And he knew it would. He knew from the very beginning what their response would be. But it didn't keep him from coming. In fact, it is why he came. He knew the nation as a whole would not accept him. But he also knew that his voluntary death at their hands, a supreme demonstration of divine love, would win the hearts and minds of men and women from all nations, including many from the Jewish nation. So he faced the rejection of some to be able to save those who would accept him. And that includes us today. And as we follow his example in doing what must be done in spite of the rejection of some, we repeat his cry to a city he loves. Oh, Chatham, Chatham, how I want to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing. Rather than condemn those who are caught up in the greed and selfishness that characterize our society and threaten the future security of others, we invite everyone to join us under the shelter of his wings. But in love, we also warn them of the consequences of refusing to do so. And we don't stop warning them, even if they initially reject our offer. Verse 35. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
To continually refuse Christ's offer is to be left desolate, to be left empty and without hope. Not because our rejection will alter the plan of God, but because our rejection alters our place in the plan of God. Jesus is coming again to usher those who have gathered under his wings into their eternal home and to banish forever those who have refused his offer throughout their lifetime. He has warned us. But he's also done something filled with grace. He has delayed his return. He has delayed his return to give us ample time to accept him. But if we refuse to let him be our Savior now, he will come back as our judge. And at that point, it will be too late to gather with the saints, even joining with them in saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord will be of no avail. It will be too late. So we position ourselves under his love and grace while there is still time. And we continue to offer his grace and love to those who have initially rejected it before it's too late. Some years ago, I read a book entitled Gifts of an Eagle. It was a story of Lady, a golden eagle taken from her nest by a falconer. Lady lived with the falconer and his family for 16 years. But when she was about four years old, something inside her said it was time for her to begin a family of her own. She began building a nest. And laying eggs. Like Jay, the Harris hawk I had for 17 and a half years, her eggs were, of course, infertile. But something was done for a lady that wasn't done for Jay. Her keeper made it possible for her to raise a baby by placing a duck egg in her nest. And she raised the duckling As her own. Now, this certainly pictures natures almost as different as Christ's and ours. Yet, a duckling born under her wings was found to be acceptable to an eagle. I don't think you have to be experienced with birds of prey to realize that if the falconer had put a live duckling in with an eagle, the outcome would have been quite different. Their different natures would make their companionship impossible. The same is true of us and God. We now have the opportunity to be born again Under the love and grace of Christ. But if we don't do it today, tomorrow, maybe 
too late. If we've not done so before he comes again, we will find ourselves totally unacceptable to him. And the Old Testament makes it very clear that he will descend upon us like an eagle on her natural prey. Now is the time to position ourselves under his wings. And if you've not done so, I pray you'll do so before it's too late.